Hey guys, and welcome to the Madman History Show. Today, we will be going into episode 2, part 2 of our series on blowback, which is the recruitment of Nazis by the USA after World War II. If you like your story to have some sort of sequence and flow, then I suggest you go back and click these links in the bottom and watch episode 0, which is the intro, and episode 1, which we talk about some of these forces and the types of forces that we worked with that were Nazis or Nazi collaborators after World War II. We talked about how the United States had adopted some of these uh, Nazis' uh, intelligence assets that they had left behind. They had recruited a lot of like Russian POWs, super anti-communist radical groups, and had left them there in East Europe and West Russia, just waiting to be tapped into or so they claim. We talked about some of the killing squads that were involved with the Holocaust, often under the direct command of Nazis who were controlling other native forces, using them to either shoot them and do the dirty work, uh, sometimes POWs, or to do um, even translating work so that they could rat out their own people. So that's what we talked about in the last episode. So if you want to go back and check that out, like I said, click down these links below. If not, stay around because this should be a nice isolated story in of itself, but we'll be moving on with this particular trend. So uh, without further ado, enjoy the episode. In what will go down in history? In what will go down in history? In what will go down in history? What kind of a what kind of a what kind of a peace do we seek? Now, I kind of ended with this question at the end of the last episode. Last episode we talked about the Eisengruppen and the the mobile killing squads that were used by the Nazis, commanded by Nazis to exterminate thousands of East Europeans and Russians and Jews and Slavs, and how a lot of these commanding officers were trying to get themselves off, like, oh, we didn't know that we were ordering mass starvation, or, oh, it wasn't up to me that the troops were committing these atrocities. So a lot of them were trying to shift blame or say that they didn't know or that it was a paper bureaucratic thing that they were not in control of and how either they got off totally or some of them were only in jail for a few years at most out of 20 that they were supposed to serve in some cases. So today we're not going to be talking about Nazis that were in charge of killing squads, but men you would maybe think of, scientists and engineers, even dreamers, people that were looking to the stars and trying to will their dreams into reality. They had desires just like me or you or I have, but maybe world events swept them up off their feet and are they someone to blame if you're dreaming to go to the stars, but you have to kill people along the way. And I want you to watch this clip from Dr. Strangelove, which is a Stephen Kubrick movie. Dr. Strangelove is a Nazi German scientist that the United States has brought over and he's a consultant, so I want you to watch this. I just want you to watch the mood and watch 
Doctor Strange himself, okay? But look here, Doctor, wouldn't this nucleus of survivors be so grief-stricken and anguished that they, well, envy the dead and not want to go on living? No, sir. Excuse me. Also, when, when they go down into the mine, everyone will still be alive. There will be no shocking memories. And the prevailing motion will be one of nostalgia for those left behind. Combined with a spirit of bold curiosity for the adventure ahead. <laughs> so as you can see, you see his hand trying to do the, the Hal Hitler the whole time. It's just so ingrained in him. You know, he's been restrained. He's not, you know, in a place of power anymore, right? The Nazis are over. It's Russia versus the United States now. But he's, you know, still it's still inside of him despite working with this, uh, the United States. But now you're wondering, at least I wonder if you're wondering, was this ever a real thing? Did we just bring Nazi consultants into the war room? I'm not sure exactly about the war room, not, but for sure we brought them into our laboratories, universities, Air Force bases, all sorts of places like that. Places of power and influence. And even one of them got to work with Walt Disney. And the scientist, and one of the most famous ones up until maybe the late 1980s, was Werner von Braun. He was a Prussian aristocrat who was going to school. Uh, apparently he wasn't very good at math and science until he read some German science fiction novel and it really spurred his imagination and did everything he could to uh, be a part of space travel. So he joined all of these uh, amateur rocket groups and became way more invested in his studies and he ends up working with this general known as Walter Dornberger. Von Braun and Dornberger have a very close tie together in this story. Dornberger is also very influential in that he was a, another scientist that we brought over. But after World War I, the Treaty of Versailles prevented Germany from making tons of militarized assets like tanks and guns and limited to how much they could produce and stuff like that. But one thing that Dornberger noticed was that it included rockets. Because mainly rockets were not a thing at the time, and even up until the late 30s from the late 1910s, uh, rockets were still sort of a hobbyist thing, not really something that they were taking too seriously. And he found out that, hey, rockets are not on the Versailles Treaty. If we can put a lot of dynamite in the tip of a rocket, we think that we can make this a very useful artillery uh, weapon. And he was a German artillery officer, so you can kind of see where this background is coming from. So Dernberger, throughout the early 30s, is trying to get these rockets made. He is uh, ha successful for a little while that he gets to have his program, and they're going along until apparently Hitler has some sort of dream that the, the rocket failed into the English Channel and didn't work, so he put it off hold. And from what Simpson says in the book, that Hitler really paid a big attention to these dreams. And it wasn't until, like, a few years later to the early 1940s that Walter Dernberger tried again. He brought all these little models and all these uh, data and information to do this little presentation for Hitler, little wooden 
rocket models and he used them to fire off and show him what he could do with them and he won them over and so that's when they started these these secret weapons programs that would eventually be taken in this or around this little town of Nordhausen in Germany. These rocket programs were so secret that Joseph Goebbels, the propagandist mastermind of the Nazi party, even made it illegal to talk about them in public. Any mention of rocketry or anything like that it was off the table because it was part of Hitler's Wonder Waff or Wonder Weapon arsenal that he was you know, threatening with the world. And the thing that makes the rocket so crazy at the time is that it was a method of artillery that you can try to shoot, and especially from long range, because it goes extremely high up into the sky and then comes back down. And you can't have an airplane. They didn't have planes that were high enough or able enough for any anti-ballistic uh, defense in order to shoot these things out of the sky, right? So it would just come up, and it would just come down with all this dynamite in the tip of the nose, essentially. And you wouldn't be able to see it coming, and they... You'll see that the Germans also were coming up with basically these cruise missiles sort of too, but they were much louder, didn't have that element of surprise, and the V-2s were really a destructive weapon, and we'll see the kind of disasters that they caused. And and to start off, Von Braun and Dornberger were sort of the ones parodied around as, oh, these are the good Nazis. We got the ones that were roped in. They didn't believe in this ideology. They didn't have any blood on their hands as far as atrocities were concerned. You know, as it was, these were, these were good Germans. These were our Germans. And they were helping to defend American freedom against communism. And maybe that makes them such interesting characters because you don't really know what, especially Von Braun, because he keeps using this story of, oh, I want to go to space, that's what I really want to do, I really want to go to space, so I had to work with Nazis because I really wanted to go to space, and that's the question I'm trying to pose here today is, do you really have blood on your hands? And so, the underground facilities that they used to make these rockets outside of this little town of Nordhausen, they were also secret because they built these uh, elaborate under this huge, it was in a mountain, like a salt mountain, that they used lots of slave labor to excavate these huge tunnel systems in this mountain that they were making all these rockets because they had been making it in uh, other places before, but eventually they got bombed because they were found out by the Allies, so they made this crazy secret underground base for making these rockets um, that they called metalwork. Like I said, carved out of a mountain. And before we're even getting into the actual rocket production, the conditions of making these tunnels were horrific because most of the German population is under war at this point. It's 1943. The war is way underway, and there is a short of labor, essentially. So what the Nazis decided to do is use concentration labor. A lot of these uh, concentration inmates were from the specific camp called Dora Camp, most of these inmates, and I'm talking thousands of people, will lose their life building these rocket factories and building the rockets. To describe some of the conditions of making these tunnels for middle work, the V2 rocket factory, I'm going to quote from Annie Jacobson's 
Operation Paperclip. <clears throat> Quote, the prisoners worked 12-hour shifts, seven days a week, putting together V weapons. By the end of the first two months, there were 8,000 men living and working in this cramped underground space. There was no fresh air in the tunnels, no ventilation system, no water, and very little light. Blasting went on day and night, and the dust after every blast was so thick that it was impossible to see five steps ahead, read one report. Laborers slept inside the tunnels in wood bunk beds. There was no washing facilities and no sanitation. Latrines were barrels cut in half. The workers suffered and died from starvation, dysentery, pleurisy, pneumonia, tuberculosis, phlemasia, from beatings. The men were walking skeletons, skin stretched over bones. Some perished from ammonia burns to the lungs. Others died by being crushed from the weight of the rocket parts they were forced to carry. The dead were replaceable. Humans and machine parts went into the tunnels. Rockets and corpses came out. Workers who were slow when the production lines were beaten to death. Insubordinates were garroted or hanged. After the war, war crime investigators determined that approximately half of the 60,000 eventually brought to the Nordhausen were worked to death. Half of 60,000 worked to death in this just this one particular town and this is 1943 slave labor and concentration camp in nazi germany has been going on for well, at least four years since 39 from what i think they're saying about another character about to read over that was also let over uh, in fact other german companies which will eventually get their fingers pointed at we're also using a lot of slave labor at this point. Famous companies like IG Farben, a chemical company, and even other ones like Volkswagen, using concentration labor as a means to for production. Another character that we're going to hear about is Albert Speer. He took over the uh, armaments minister in Germany, and, and he was involved with trying to figure out how to make super efficient production, and he figured that it was slave labor that would make it really efficient production. One Brigadier General Hans Kammler was overseeing some of the production at the labor of building the tunnels, and he had this to say, quote, Pay no attention to the human victims. The work must proceed and be finished in the shortest possible time. Albert Speer, the armaments minister, architect of these concentration camps and using them, had to say this of Kamler. Your work far exceeds anything ever done in Europe and is unsurpassed even by American standards. So they're all complimenting each other on how well they use this efficient concentration labor camp force. And a, and a lot of these positions and titles is where this story starts to get dicey because a lot of them say that, oh, yes, maybe I was at that facility, but I didn't have anything to do with this or that, you know, labor situation, or it was out of my hands, or it was not something I believed in, especially since some of them are not technically part of the SS, but they work directly with a lot of these SS guys, but they say that their hands are clean, but we'll be able to see soon how closely were these men working with each other and how much did they know and really have influence over what was going on. Another quote from Christopher Simpson's blowback about some of these conditions at the V2 rocket factory. Thousands of inmates starved to death. Cholera raged through the camp, killing hundreds each day. At first the SS cremated the dead so as to keep down disease among the surviving slaves. As the end neared, however, 
The ovens couldn't keep up with the demand, and the corpses were simply left to rot. Inmates piled the bodies up in corners, under stairways, anywhere that was little out of the way, and the rocket work continued. Nordhausen and the Dora Camp were among the first places by the Americans to be liberated, and in this next sequence I'm going to play some of the actual war footage that they actually have of the rescue and liberation of this camp. Uh, I suggest you skip ahead the next few minutes if you don't want to watch this. It is very difficult to watch. But it's important to see what was happening here. And maybe this is also maybe why I find it kind of distasteful. And I'm putting my own opinion in here, yes. That once you just see the reality of these kind of concentration camps, these factories run by engineers and scientists and dreamers. I want you to see what these real people live through. Let's play that clip right here and we'll come back and talk about after. The victims are mainly Poles and Russians with considerable numbers of French and other nationalities also included in the camp roster. Burgermeister of Nordhausen is ordered to provide 600 German male civilians who will inter the 2,500 unburied bodies at the camp. And among those people dead are Germans, Belgians, French, Czechoslovakian, British, anyone really. Jews as well, Russians too, a lot of them were Russians, and even some of these people that were picked out to work at some of these camps were even engineers and you know, people with actual real skill, and all they used them for was to work to death in these, in these factories. And so, we're wondering once again, where do our characters, Albert Speer, Walter Dornberger, Werner Von Braun, where do these men fit into this blame chain essentially because after the war once again I, I reiterate it and if you think about it, once again the CIA and the media trying to paint certain paint a certain picture of what they want the American people to feel yes we hired some of these guys but oh but they didn't really have anything to do with this oh they were they're they're men of science they don't believe in this Nazi ideology oh they were they were in charge in charge of Eitzengruppen or uh, mobile killing squads in the Holocaust no they were just you know making weapons which is another aspect we're about to get to but let's just talk about this concentration camp reality first. What do these men actually know about every situation? Werner von Braun says that he didn't know anything about that. And then later he would also seem to claim that, oh, I, I happen to know about it, but I felt bad and maybe there was more I could have done. 
As the war escalated, Werner von Braun's involvement with the Nazis deepened. His infamous V-2 rocket was now ready for production at a secret underground factory in central Germany named Mittelwerk. But the German military needed manpower to produce the V-2s at a time when most German men were fighting on the front lines of the war. There was, you know, a lot of foreign workers in Nazi Germany and there were also the SS concentration camps. And once concentration camp labor was brought to the middle of Eric, it became the mainstay of the production force and the conditions were a disaster and von Braun was a direct witness to the conditions. We probably would feel better about him if we thought he was opposed to the idea of concentration camp labor, but it doesn't change the fact that he became mixed up in, in the actual criminal system, which led to the deaths of thousands of prisoners. And we should underline this. So we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking thousands of dead. Remember, I was a very young man in Germany, and I was so busy with my rockets that maybe in retrospect, I sometimes wonder whether I shouldn't have worried a little more about some of these aspects. And as I grew older, of course, and I saw the ramifications, of course, also the suffering that's involved, uh, you, uh, you uh, rethink some of these things. I just find it, you know, a really challenging issue of the human predicament, and certainly a predicament for, for men and women who work in Scientology, who have dreams, that are big and they and they they want something so badly because it wasn't in really till after his death that Werner von Braun started to have more fingers pointed at him especially after Arthur Rudolph was in the late eight, 1980s uh, asked to leave the United States amongst all these Nazi war criminal uh, allegations coming back Arthur Rudolph is another guy that worked directly under Werner von Braun Arthur Rudolph was the operations director at Metalwork. He worked with the SS, uh, so people like Speer and people like Hans Kammler that we just talked about, and the production of the tunnels. And then he also worked directly under von Braun, overseeing the assembly line for these V-2 rockets. And Arthur Rudolph is maybe not the type of guy that would have gotten off as easily as maybe von Braun and Dornberger, as we're about to see. Arthur Rudolph was... A Nazi before it, he was even popular to be a Nazi essentially back in Germany and was involved with the party very early on. So you could tell he was very ardent about his views and not just someone like Von Braun who said, Oh, I was roped in and oh, I just wanted to work in rockets and space travel and didn't know any about that other concentration camp stuff. And the public did not know about a lot of these men working at these particular places. We'll be able to see that. Werner von Braun will work with Disney in order to have this giant space travel propaganda campaign uh, to the American public, and he's heralded as a hero getting man to the moon. But once again, what did these men come from? Did they, as one historian, uh, Michael Neufeld, put it, did he sell his soul to whoever mattered as long as he got to work on rockets? Is that someone that we need to idealize and work with? A lot of these titles, operations director, armaments minister, general manager, a lot of these terms are these bureaucratic little loopholes that these men try to use in order to push blame or push plausible deniability, saying that, oh, I had no idea about that going on there. It was known that afterwards that Von Braun worked for uh, in this 
rocket facility called Punanumbra, but it was destroyed in 1943, which has prompted the movement of these production facilities underground at Middlework, where all these tunnels are made and all the mass starvation and killing beforehand. And Von Braun is known to have worked there. Many people saw him there. We have another character named George Rickey, and I promise that all these men will come back at some point. So German er, George Rickey was the what he called himself the general manager of Middlework, the sort of director of other personnel telling what the engineers should be doing, what the SS should be doing. The day after he became general manager of the plant, he got together with Von Braun and Arthur Rudolph to have a meeting about uh, the production. I'm going to quote here again from Operation Paperclip from Annie Jacobson. I will quote, On May 6, 1944, days after becoming a general manager of Metalwork, Ricky called a meeting to discuss how best to acquire more prisoners for slave labor. Werner von Braun, Walter Dornberger, and Arthur Rudolph were all present. It was decided that the SS should enslave another 1,800 skilled French workers to fill the shoes of those who had already worked to death. The record indicates that von Braun, Dornberger and Rudolph showed no objection to Ricky's plan. And here's a quote from Von Braun on him being at Metalworks. So it, 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 his story has gone from, oh, I didn't know, to being like, oh, I didn't have anything, I couldn't have done anything about it. And we'll get to that, could he have done something about it? But let's just defeat the, did you know something about it first? So quote from Von Braun. During my last visit to Metalwork, you proposed to me that we use the good technical education of detainees available to you from Buchenwald. I immediately looked into your proposal by going to Bushenwald myself, together with Dr. Simon, to seek out more qualified detainees. I have arranged their transfer to the metalwork with the standard Fuhrer So, he definitely knew what the conditions of metalwork were, that thousands of them were dying, and that needed to be replaced by some new ones, and showed no objection to having more slaves being brought in in order to make his rockets. Oh, I just wanted to go to the moon... I just needed a few thousand people in order to do it, and I just needed their lives and their time. And, and Dornberger and his subordinates, Ron Brown, Arthur Rudolph, said that they had nothing really to do with these conditions or had any impact on this many people dying. And sure, maybe people like Dornberger were in charge of the personnel, in charge of people like the beatings, like George Rickey maybe, or were in charge of the, the slave labor being brought in, like Arthur Rudolph. Dornberger was just merely in charge in the production quotas and the schedules that were to be run. So maybe he was the one setting those 12-hour work days for the slaves. So in short, maybe you weren't the ones telling the guys to shoot the gun at the person, but you were sure the one that set the rocket production schedule to work these people to death. Is that any justification for blame here? I'll let you decide. Couldn't they have slowed down the production? Because you'll find out, up until the very end of the war, both Von Braun and Dornberger are not slowing down production at all. They're going full speed. I'll show you some also some other documentary clips, and even some people will say that, oh, Von Braun, he was conflicted. Uh, he had been arrested in 44 after making some drunken comments about the Nazi party not doing so well in the war and it being run amok, and that's, of course, like a big no-no if you're going to try to say anything bad about the Third Reich during the Third Reich in the Third Reich. Uh, he was in jail for about 10 days, but they're trying to say, like, oh, look at his, his conscience. He's so worked up about... Uh, what he's gotten himself involved in and stuff like that. But then why not slow down the production lines? Why not make less rockets? Why not close down your facility on some little technical accident or something like that? 
any little bit helps. Didn't lobby to have his production stop. Oh, no, but... So is it because he was roped into it? Did he keep doing it because he wanted to go to space? Which one are we going to pick here? Even in Dornberger's biography that Christopher Simpson in the Blowback book talks about, Dornberger is going on and on about, uh, oh, the magnificence of the rocket design and all the technical aspects and details and nitty-gritty and uh, all these designs and hardships about trying to bring this rocket into reality. And as I like how Christopher Simpson puts it, we're going to quote here. Quote, he presents events in his book as though his missiles had simply leaped off their driving boards and into the skies with no intermediate steps, as though rockets could somehow build themselves. And even if they had some sort of objection or some plausible deniability about what they were able to do about the labor camp conditions, how much did they actually relish in their scientific achievements Von Braun would go on to say that he had nothing to really want to do with the Nazi ideology and that it was all just about going to space. Dornberger would say, I was never part of the SS officially, so I didn't have anything to do with that either. But they would go both on to fantasize and about old days. They were both part of this one ceremony at this uh, old German castle, and there's debate uh, in this in the Annie Jacobson book about where it could have actually been, but they say it was in Castle Valar. And they had this big, giant party, all these big, huge V2 rockets lined up. And every time they shoot off one, they, they all clap and cheer. And they give one of either Dornberger or Von Braun or one of the other scientists a medal award for just great job, guys. And that was December 9th, I believe. And then a week later, on December 16th, the Ardennes Offensive, which was the last offensive started by the Germans, the last big one. They had another party uh, for these... Nazi rocket scientists fired off some more, got some more awards. Look, we're all shipping champagne, Von Brown and Dornberger. Dornberger is even supposed to cry at some of these events because he's so tear-eyed about how great his achievements have come. On December 16, 1944, one of these V-2 rockets crashes into a town in Belgium called Antwerp. I'm going to quote here from Andy Jacobson's Oper Operation Paperclip. Quote, In the eyes of the Reich, Hitler's rocketeers had good reason to celebrate. In Antwerp, at 3.20 p.m., a V-2 rocket had smashed into the Rex Cinema, where almost 1,200 people were watching a Gary Cooper film. It was the highest death toll from a single rocket attack during the war. 567 casualties. So, one of those rockets, one of his V-2 rockets, they're babies, Dornberger, Von Braun, the babies, and just one incident, 567 people dead. So, there's a lot of fingers that I'm seeing being pointed at here. How much of a, not an, an ardent Nazi were you? Were you really just roped in? Or like Von Braun, who also used these Nazi connections in order to further the himself uh, academically uh, when he was starting a lot of work on this stuff? Did you know stuff about the concentration camps? Did you, could you have done anything? Did you know anything about any of this stuff happening? And three, you're making weapons. And that's maybe what's fascinating about this story, all the the gray morality about uh, what's going on here. But I still think we're not done with Von Braun's personality ana analysis here. And so, like I said, Von Braun and Dornberger were already seeing Germany not winning the war in the end. But they knew that they had something of value. They're rocket scientists. The V-2, no one had the V-2. No one had this kind of long-range destructive capabilities that Germany had right now. The United States didn't have it, and they really wanted it. And the Germans knew that. So at the end of the war, 
Dornberger and Von Braun's people, they decide um, instead of staying in where they were, they decide to move west because they wouldn't be picked up by the American forces. Here it is in Von Braun's own words. Uh, we could very well have stayed at our former experimental station in eastern Germany and just waited for the Russian army to come in, but we elected uh, really by taking a vote uh, to move west instead and uh, get rolled over by the American army because we wanted to ultimately wind up in America given this choice. And so why would Von Braun and his group of buddies want to be picked up by the Americans? Because, one, the Americans want the V-2 rockets. Okay? They know how to make V-2 rockets, therefore they want them to make them V-2 rockets. And two, another reason they don't want to be picked up by the Russians is because, and we just talked about this last episode, about the mass amounts of killing that the Russians endured from the German invasion, let alone all the Russians that were used in the POW camps and their interrogations. The Russians are not very happy with these Germans right now, especially the ones that are using these slave labor camps and mobile killing squad officers. And a lot of these places that Americans are moving into and starting to take control of were supposed to be promised to the Russians. They had sent up agreements beforehand that if we beat Germany, this is what you get, this is what they get, this is what you get. We can start to see the friction that will occur, occur between these two countries because Russia is claiming that, hey, we are supposed to get Nordhausen and everything inside there, that is our zone to control once this is all over. And you have the Americans and the British you know, sneaking these guys out of here and taking all of, a lot of the equipment as well and stuff like that. So there was a quite explicit plan to you know get the v2s disassembled and get as many parts as they could and get as many of their people heading in the direction that they knew the american army was so they would be surrendering to the right side so von brown and his team they not only move west to get away from the russians but they also hide a lot of documents and v2 specs in weird places like burying them in the woods and burying them in the mine tunnels so that no one can find them and that if they get caught they can say oh well don't kill me because you need me because I can give you the rocket and I can give you more data and more specs and stuff like that more blueprints if you just you know take me away and just don't war they try they all know that they're trying to get out of war criminals trials they all know that they're guilty in some way why else do you think they'd be running from the Russians they would be They'd be annihilated, essentially, if they got uh, their hands a hold of them. So they're trying to get away, and they're trying to get to a side that they know that they can exploit. They know that they are wanted for their military capability. And we'll begin to see that not everybody in the U.S. Army is down with hiring these guys or working with them at all. But the powers that be managed to move their chess pieces around in order to have these guys moved in. So under Project Overcast, a lot of these submarine specialists, chemical specialists rocket engineers are all brought over because of the perceived threat of you know at the time it's at the end of world war ii but they're still fighting japan and soon it will be russia and they're bringing over them for sort of you know short-term temporary military advantages but eventually you'll start having people in truman's administration and people around him and other people that are already eyeballing people like alan dulles and maybe other uh, clandestine army intelligence groups are trying to finagle around a way to get a lot of these uh, assets over to their side away from the Russians. But under these certain rules of bringing these guys over, they were supposed to be, quote, and not an active supporter of Nazism or militarism. 
this is making weapons militaristic, but a lot of this is circumvented perhaps what is an active or an active supporter since it wasn't super defined which will eventually lead to problems i'm gonna quote here from blowback quote as early as june 1945 rca chief david sarnoff argues in a confidential letter to president Truman, chief science advisor that the security for any nation henceforth depends to a very large extent on its place in the scientific sun that sun may shine brightly for those who know and it may be a total blackout for those who don't it is not only important that we get Germany's scientific information, but that we lay hands on their scientists as well. If we do not find them and then remove them to a place perhaps on this side of the water, where they can continue their scientific experiments under our guidance and control, our Russian friends may do so first. So you begin to see this evolution of Nazis, total surrender, no bargains, to, oh, we might need a few of these guys to help us start some of these projects we might need their intel but we but we don't want to hire any of the super extremist nazis or the super hitler supporters the ardent supporters so they say and eventually it'll just be well you're gonna let the russians have them we can't let the russians have them so the argument will eventually evolve over time but as we just saw there's already people in the state department telling truman hey we can't let you know we can't fall behind there can't be a gap Mr. President, we must not allow a mineshaft gap. And I'm going to be showing so many Dr. Strange love quotes, and and I think it also goes to point out. I mean, that movie is very good at being symbolic in this sense, but it's George C. Scott's character, Buck Turgidson, I think. And when they're talking about the doomsday weapon, I think it kind of shows the army uh, really wanting these really strong, you know big explosive weapons, a lot of show of strength, so to speak. A Nazi scientist is talking about the doomsday weapon, and the U.S. Army General Buck Turgidson is whispering to this other guy, man, I wish I wish we had one of them doomsday weapons. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Daisy. So you can just see how they're able to immediately separate feelings on these particular individuals. Were they involved in extraordinary technical capabilities for sure did they rely on human suffering to get those done absolutely but if it's going to help us defeat communism and the russians then i don't see why we can't use fire to fight with fire well it's a little counterintuitive sounding isn't it once i say it so when truman agreed to allow the capture and temporary hiring of these nazi scientists chemists weaponists there was supposed to be a f sort of filter system in the state department that the people in the field would write all these reports up compiled of their ties with the nazi party any war criminal tribes or battles or atrocities they could have been involved in personality analysis all sorts of information and then they would send it over to the state department state department immigration department would then basically mark them if they were good to go or not if you are a third reich hardcore member there's a good chance that you're not going to get in but if not if there's no ties that they see of then you're almost guaranteed to get in for that the completely opposite so once again here we have this legal structure that has no accountability that is going to be circumvented that these bureaucrats are really really good at and that's why they have them here and Werner von Braun uh, knows this. He knows that uh, they want what he knows. So he travels west. Um, him and his, even his younger brother and Dornberger and their whole staff are 
picked up by the Americans, and it's almost as if they're kind of really too confident in their capture. They are just so sure of themselves that the United States Army has what they want, and they're they are going to be just fine. They're going to get to go to America and retire and have a good old time and work on their rocket science, so to speak, because they just know they're that valuable. And it seems, unfortunately, that they're right. And not to mention that they also are bargaining with the fact that they not only have all the information in their brains and the general managing skills in order to bring this project to, to full fruition, but they have, like I mentioned earlier, hidden a lot of the documents and specs and some supplies uh, hidden away, and they're saying, oh, if you just you know get as far down this bureaucratic line, they get us off the front, get us onto your home base, at least you know the farther they go, the more they give away, essentially. That's their bargaining chips, and they were very strategic in how they did this. And their confidence rubs a lot of these U.S. Army men of the CIC, they're the ones that they're brought to. We mentioned the CIC in the last episode, the Army Counterintelligence Service. And a lot of these, there's so many different names that they fall under, and they compete with each other a lot, all these different, you would think they'd be working together. But imagine, like, you have the CIC, which is sort of more of, like, on-the-ground Army Division's for intelligence gathering, and if we think of CIA, clandestine, guerrilla warfare, spying, that sort of thing. And then you have, like, the OSS, which is more of, like, the State Department style, more supposed to be civilian-run and not general-run. They sort of all these people kind of merge together, essentially, into the CIA when it's all kind of brought about anyway. But the German scientist, especially Von Braun, is mentioned here, is rubbing a lot of these guys the wrong way. I'm going to quote here from Annie Jacobson's Operation Paperclip. Quote, the group posed for photographs, and in the pictures, they are all smiles. Von Braun boasted about having invented the V2. He was, quote, its founder and guiding spirit, he insisted. Everyone else was secondary to him. Some members of the 44th Division Counterintelligence Corps, CIC, found, found Von's hubris appalling. He posed for endless pictures with individual GIs, in which he beamed, shook hands, pointed inquiringly at medals, and otherwise conducted himself as a celebrity rather than a prisoner. And noted that, don't forget I'm interjecting here, that his V2s have killed people, right? Oh, look, yes, I invented the V2, the ones that killed your, that killed the allies, your allied buddies, you know? Yes, that was me. Noted one member, treating our soldiers with such affable condescension of a visiting congressman. Second Lieutenant Walter Jessel was an American intelligence officer originally in charge of interrogating Von Braun. His first and most lasting impression was the lack of remorse. There is a recognition of Jeremy's defeat but none whatsoever of Germany's guilt and responsibility. So confident were von Braun and Dornberger about their value to the U.S. Army, they demanded to see General Eisenhower, whom they called Ike. Another observer noted, If we hadn't caught the biggest scientist in the Third Reich, we had certainly caught the biggest liar. And they often go back and they, when they're being interrogated, Dornberger and Von Braun and even, yeah, I think I may have said this, Von Braun's younger brother and all these other scientists are being all cordial and chummy at first, and then when they think that, you know, their deal is going to be taken away, then they take all the stuff off the table, they stop talking, and uh, it, they're just really just being political about this whole, you know, thing. And once again, they know that they don't want to be caught about any inconsistencies in their stories in case it comes word comes back around that, hey, were these guys were involved with a bunch of uh, human atrocities that are uh, prosecutable uh, in this case, and they, the Army Division Counterintelligence Service, or, uh, and a lot of these people that are 
directly hiring these guys and working with them and picking them up are supposed to be the ones combing them out to see if they are uh, worthy of bringing to trial or not. So in order to get them across, they do a bunch of briefing, and but in order to, for them to get across, so like I said, they have to be screened beforehand, reports written about them, and then they get transferred from the CIC and this other uh, intelligence service that's just called the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, which is part of the Pentagon. And they were wanting more and more of these scientists, more and more of them brought aboard. And what becomes temporary military advantage is becoming, like I said earlier, don't let the Russians get them. And almost national security, if you want to call it even that. We can't let the bad guys fall into the, the badder guys' hands, so to speak. And a lot of these Nazis end up sort of like in this limbo. Uh, there, a lot of their families are brought over uh, to America right away. Some of them it takes a little longer to get them over, and they still ha- and some still have war atrocity charges pending on them, and investigations are still being done when a lot of these scientists are brought over, which just makes the whole thing even messier. Because once they've brought them over, it's so hard to try to pull them back out, especially if they're already working in so many of these programs that the Army or Navy or Air Force or whoever needs them not going to let them go because they find them useful. And Operation Overcast just eventually turned to Operation Paperclip with Truman saying, like, okay, like, let's just not bring super ardent Nazis in here. But as we'll see, uh, the JIOA, which is what I just said, the, the Pentagon's Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, they're pushing for the bigger program to bring more of these people in. And we have this director named Bosket Webb, is the one bringing some of these first batches of scientists over. And so some of these first Nazis being brought into Operation Paperclip, Bo- Director Boskett Webb is having to, like I said, you have all these reports and you send them to the State Department, and the State Department immigration and all the foreign of- officials have to clear these guys over, give them visas, give them passports, give them identities, and get them uh, situated in America. Not to mention American taxpayer money to set them up and bring them over here. Strangelove can store all the information. What kind of a name is that? That ain't no crowd name, is it, Stanley? He changed it when he became a citizen. It used to be McVectic Lieber. Hmm. A crowd by any other name, I think. And I'm going to quote here from Christopher Simpson's blowback. I'm, and it's talking about the reports that are on Bosket Webb's petitions to bring these Nazis in. The report bluntly pointed out that some of Webb's recruits who had actually already entered the United States under Project Overcast, had been ardent Nazis. The records on the other specialists on the paperclip recruiting list were not much better. Some of the experts were accused of participating in murderous medical experiments on human subjects in concentration camps, for example, and of brutalizing slave laborers. One was a fugitive from formal murder charters. Another was known to have established an institute for biological warfare experimentation on humans in Poland. At least half of web recruits, and probably more, were Nazi party members or SS veterans. So this first batch from Outright Rejected, and it specifically mentions this man in both books, Annie Jacobson's Operation Paperclip and Christopher Simpson's Blowback, which was Samuel Klaus. Samuel Klaus was the State Department representative who was the one basically being no or yes to these lists being sent over by Bosket Webb. And it just says how he refused to uh, let these guys in. He was the one writing the reports on, no, the earlier listing that you have for Project Overcast, let alone this new project, all have super Nazi hardcore guys. 
when clearly Truman is saying, don't hire these particular kinds of people. And so the director, Bosket Webb, of the DIOA is totally mad, and he makes this secret memo, and that returning his scientists to Germany, quote, presents a far greater security threat to this country than any former Nazi affiliations which they may have had, or any Nazi sympathies that they may still have. So it doesn't matter. National security is way more than anything they've done or anything they still believe in. So Bosket Webb really wants these guys brought over for X or Y agency for whatever reason, for national security reasons. And he's wondering, well, my reports and my files are being denied. So how am I going to get around that? Well, what if we just changed the reports? What if we just didn't say that there were Nazis? What if we just took that part off? And that's exactly what he did. He went back to the initial report making, which is in the UCOM, which is the United States European Command, and his message is very blunt by Christopher Simpson, who's going to quote here from Blowback again. There is very little possibility that the state and justice departments will agree to emigrate any specialist who has been classified as an actual or potential security threat to the United States. This may result in the return to Germany of specialists whose skills and knowledge should be denied to other nations in the interest of national security. Therefore, Webb concluded, it is requested that new security reports be submitted where such action is appropriate. So he's saying resubmit these again, change some of this stuff because we really, really, really need them. But I don't want to, I also want to stress the other Americans who were also protesting a lot of this, not just Samuel Klaus who was trying to deny and really sniff out any details about these guys and was really not a not down to hire or bring over any of these guys and was also pissed about the uh, using the American tax money to bring them over and that also even mad that they were bringing them over and not even sometimes working for the US government but end up working for private corporations and so when Dornberger and Von Braun and a lot of these guys are they're kind of like I said held in limbo for a while they have to live on uh, Air Force bases and uh, small towns for a while then they don't really get to see the American public they're kind of very kept away from them if anything and they are kept on hush hush and you know they work and do their things what they need to do they're they're from you know f a, a lot of times since like 1945 for the next five years almost though it was a far cry from the suffering in post-war Germany life for the men at Fort Bliss was not exactly the American dream we lived in an army enclave there and had very little contact really with the American population. So I could not really develop a close rapport with America at the time. And a lot of them famously are also brought to Wright Field to work on a lot of their rocket propulsion systems, guided missile systems, stuff like that. And I'm going to quote here from now Secret Agenda by Linda Hunt. Quote, General Nur, of course, immediately pounced the idea of bringing Dornberger to Wright Field, and once again, his over-enthusiasm for the Germans rankled other American officers. One general told Nur that not only would he block AFF efforts to employ Dornberger, but that, quote, in fact, we may trade him to the Russians for a dish of caviar. So, a lot of these generals, not everybody is, you know, all excited to bring these Nazis over here. Only the ones that are kind of using the excuse for national security and stuff like that are the ones pushing for their breed or for bringing them over here. And some of these Germans just couldn't keep their mouths shut either from bragging about some of this stuff. And if you remember George Rickey, who was the self-proclaimed general manager of the Nordhausen facilities and operated all the personnel who were doing the beatings and the, and the starvations and the hangings at all of these camps, is 
1945, he's already in America, and he eventually gets called away because some people put some paper trails together, and they find out that, hey, this is there's only one George Rickey who's now working at the Wright Force Base, and there was only other one George Rickey that we were able to find that was working as one of the supervisors at this concentration camp. So George Rickey, who's already in the United States, gets ousted and has to be taken over to Germany for the Nordhausen concentration camp trials. And this is a big problem for the JOA which is, once again, still part of the Pentagon, they are going to have a big problem if they find out that one of these scientists brought over an Operation Paperclip is now going to be wanted in a war crimes trial. That is not going to look good on that somehow this slipped through, let alone a bunch of other ones already got let through. Bosquet Webb, the director that we talked about that was the one who able to change these uh, dossiers on these Nazis to get them changed to make them look less uh, threatening, he memoed, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI, and he was even warning him, like, hey, we got to watch out. We need to make sure that this does not come to light. So they go and send, you know, George Rickey goes back to Germany. It's 1947 at this point. The prosecution also wanted von Braun to return to Germany as well, but the United States was, oh, uh, we can't let him go over there because what if he gets kidnapped by the Russians? We can't let that happen. Let alone that before that time they had let him go back to Germany to marry his cousin. And Von Braun was also managed to be a sneaky in another instance as well when they needed to interview him and have some clear reports on who this guy was and what exactly he was involved in. They had some army investigator who was supposed to go to his house and, oh, he just happened to not be there. Just maybe just happened to get a little tip to not be there for that interview when uh, he had the chance on that particular day. So you kind of see people on Von Braun getting him out of jail, so to speak. So at this trial, 15 of the 19 defendants are actually sentenced guilty. George Rickey, the general manager of the Nordhausen facilities, is not considered guilty. He is acquitted based on flimsy evidence. And it's even funny in these war criminal trials and uh, their interviews. That a lot of these Nazis are stabbing each other in the back or sometimes also stabbing each other in the back or lying at the same time to help each other. Or Arthur Rudolph is denying this or that, saying sometimes in one interview where he's going, oh, I didn't know about, you know, hangings, and then the next time they ask him, he says, well, yeah, the SS did that sometimes, and then there's also reports of lots of hangings going just right outside of his office, too, that they did this for show to make sure that the prisoners knew what was going to happen if they tried to do anything about their situation. And even if Ricky was especially found guilty, they couldn't let that come to light, cause especially since he was working with so close of these rocket scientists, and once again, America couldn't lose these guys. And another reason that they didn't want Von Braun or maybe Rudolph, Arthur Rudolph, or Dornberger to also go back to this trial is that a lot of the defendants may recognize them and also turn them over. But they had to make sure that Ricky was acquitted, because if he was able to expose some of the the infrastructure of like who was working at particular positions and it was going to undermine the Operation Overcast paperclip. Another defendant in the trial was this SS officer, Simon, who was working with Dornberger and Rudolph and with direct connection with these men. I'm going to quote here from Secret Agenda by Linda Huntigan. SS officer Simon, Dora's labor allocation leader, was also sitting on the dock charged with murder. This man was so brutal that the Torah prisoners had nicknamed him Simon Legree. An example of his brutality occurred one summer day in 1944 when a trainload of Hungarian Jews, including children, arrived from Auschwitz so weak from hunger they had to be carried into the camp. Simon immediately assigned the adults to grueling work detail, forcing them to carry heavy wood planks to construct their own prison barracks. 
Soon many of them dropped dead from the exhaustion. Then Simon went after the children, whom he considered useless because they were too young, no more than ten or twelve years old, to work with the tunnels. He ordered the SS to round them up in the camp yard and beat them to death with clubs. SS officer Simon is eventually found guilty, but a lot of these close guys that he worked with, oh, just happened to get off because if these guys are prosecuted, then their whole operation and the people that they do need are also going to get fingers pointed at them, and that's we just can't have that happen. So von Braun and Dornberger and all of these other, Arthur Rudolph, all of these German scientists that they brought over, uh, besides George Ricci, who was acquitted and stayed in Germany, get to remain in the United States for some time and will go on to have pretty lucrative careers. Dornberger got to work on classified rocket projects at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He enjoyed high U.S. security clearances and many public honors, including the American Rocket Society's Astronautics Award in 1959. By 1950, he had gone into private industry with Bell Aircraft and eventually rose to be a senior vice president in the Bell Aerosystems Division of the massive multinational Textron Corporation. There, he specialized in company liaison with the U.S. military agencies. Mind you, this is the same guy who set the production schedules of the inmates who worked themselves to death. He was the one who found out in the Versailles Treaty that rockets were not a banned weapon, that they could make the same weapons that killed civilians and allied troops. That... That's a happy ending for him. Arthur Rudolph, who was, like I said, very close worker on the on the sites, a early Nazi supporter before he was in cool to be a Nazi, who may or may have not lied about people being hung just outside of his office, got to work on Wright Patterson Air Force Base on classified special projects with the military, and even got to work with the Apollo missions on Werner von Braun. And, like I said, the, they had been living on these barracks, and they lived in very small towns for quite a while until they, I think they, they moved to Huntsville, Alabama, and Van Brown eventually got to have a bigger persona. He was obviously the best at, or he was the best at English of the group. He was the most personable. He was very chummy. He uh, was very articulate. And something about the, you know, smart German scientists, uh, especially during that time, kind of captured the imagination. And he eventually got to go from working with, you know, the rocket military systems, more weapons design with the United States Army to eventually getting to work with, which was rockets and going to space. Von Braun was finally in his ideal element. Though he was famed in the public eye for his scientific mind, his management and leadership skills would prove to be his greatest strength. Werner Von Braun was a incredible technological manager in practically any area you would want a technical manager to be strong, he was strong. He could talk to politicians and help them understand rather arcane space equipment. Not only was he good at public outreach, Von Braun was great at running a installation like the Marshall Space Flight Center. That's so nice, the guy who worked with a bunch of war criminals finally gets to live his dream of going to space. Eventually one of his groups will be rolled in with another's to make a NASA someday and was on the forefront of trying to push space travel in the American psyche and, and he worked on the Saturn V uh, and the Apollo missions that got man to the moon. And he was able to actually do that with the help of Walt Disney, who also had a fascination with this. And I'm going to show you the clip of these, they're basically, it's basically propaganda that 
they made for many other topics or topics, but one of them was space travel. That there is Werner von Braun, Nazi scientist, uh, working with uh, other people and telling the American public about you know going to space and all these technical things and aspects of it and everything. Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star. Makes no difference who you are. Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. Tomorrowland, promise of things to come. To the engineer, spaceflight poses two problems. The first is, of course, to build a rocket ship. The second, and no less important, is to prepare and train the men who are to fly the future rocket ships and to provide suitable working conditions that will enable them to survive in space. To help show you what is being done to solve these problems, we have called upon one of the foremost exponents of space travel, Dr. Werner von Braun, who is at present the chief of the guided missile division of the Army's rocket center at Redstone Arsenal. He was also overall director of the development of the original V-2 rocket. The training methods for future space flight and the special equipment needed for survival are much like those of present high altitude flying. And the experiments we are making today are helping us to solve the more complex problems to come. Eventually after the Apollo missions are over, there seems to be a lot less interest in space and, and he kind of is still advocating for space travel, especially even going to Mars. He eventually dies of cancer in 1977. We not only flew Americans to the moon, we also established quite a number of satellites that benefit mankind in a very direct way. One of the most exciting of them probably is the Large Space Telescope, a telescope that will enable astronomers to look about 10 times as deeply into space as a big telescope on Mount Palomar. Some people have said we can look so deep into space with that space telescope in orbit that we may be able to see the hand of the maker. Dr. Werner von Braun died June 16, 1977, at the age of 65. His simple headstone lists beneath his name, Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And if you really want to dive into some of the weirder aspects of this guy, you could also go and look and see uh, maybe his relation with Jack Parsons. I may do an episode on that someday. Jack Parsons, which is the one of the founders of JPL. You can even see the JP Jack Parsons. They even call it Jack Parsons Laboratory. Jack Parsons is just a weird, crazy individual, uh, rocket scientist, uh, guru, who uh, is very strange in his personal life hung around with or shared a wife actually even with L. Ron Hubbard yes the founder of Scientology and also was the the prodigy of Aleister Crowley who was this famous occultist weird uh, hedonist uh, religious figure and you even have his supposed weird conversations with Dr. Carol Rosen and there's a picture of them online and she claims that she was even like his spokesperson and he apparently told her in secret confidence that the United States military was planning to weaponize space, and which is one of the things that he even pushed for. But 
And it's, apparently he told Carol Rosen that mankind was going to be manipulated through the media and all these false flag events, specifically ones from space, that the United States military was going to need more money, more resources in order to essentially control the airspace around the Earth, so, they, so she says. And that in order to get this done, they would have been all these boogeymen for the American people to have to fight. That first it would be Russians, and then it would be terrorists and third world crazy people. And then it would be meteors. And I'm not saying any of this is true, but it is January 22nd, 2018. And there have been a whole string of weird meteor sightings and space things going on lately. So not saying who's or what's, but it's an interesting uh, thing to talk about. And then if finally that aliens were going to be the biggest threat that they were going to use the, the fear and the money to essentially control the world and that he said it was all a lie and that uh, he was all worried about it. My name is Carol Rosen. I'm an educator who became the first woman corporate manager of an aerospace company, Fairchild Industries. I'm a space and missile defense consultant. I've consulted to a number of companies, organizations, government departments, even the intelligence community. I've uh, was a consultant to TRW uh, working on the MX missile. So I was part of that strategy, which turned out to be a role model for how to sell space-based weapons to the public. In 1974 through 77, I met the late Dr. Werner von Braun in early 74. At that time, von Braun was dying of cancer, but he assured me that he would live a few more years in order to tell me about the game that was being played. That game being the effort to weaponize space, to control the Earth from space and space itself. When Werner von Braun was dying of cancer, he asked me to be his spokesperson, to appear on occasions when he was too ill to speak. And I did. And what he asked me to do was to educate decision makers and the public about why we shouldn't be putting weapons in space. The strategy that Werner von Braun taught me was that first the Russians are going to be considered to be the enemy. In fact, when I met him in 74, they were the enemy, the identified enemy. We were told that they had killer satellites. We were told that they were coming to get us and control us, the dirty commies, that whole story. First the Russians were the enemy against whom we're going to build space-based weapons. Then terrorists would be identified, and that was soon to follow. We heard a lot about terrorism. Then we were going to identify third world country crazies. We now call them nations of concern. But he said that would be the third enemy against whom we would be needing to build space-based weapons. And the next enemy was asteroids. Now at this point, he kind of chuckled the first time he said it. Asteroids against asteroids were going to build space-based weapons. So it was funny then. And the funniest one of all, was against what he called aliens, extraterrestrials. That would be the final card. And over and over and over during the four years that I knew him and was giving his speeches for him, he would bring up that last card. And remember, Carol, the last card is the alien card. We're going to have to build space-based weapons against aliens. And all of it, he said, is a lie. I mean dive into that topic someday topic someday that's a very strange out there topic um i have to see if what else we can maybe dig into to see what there's proven but there's a lot of a lot of history to this guy and we this episode has gone on way longer than what i thought but i just like to pose those questions of do the ends justify the means was national security really worth 
making a deal with the devil, so to speak. And I think that's why it's Von Braun is so fascinating. He's not, you can't really tell maybe what his true morality is. A man who was a part of so much suffering and used his dreams as an excuse in some cases. But then he kind of got what he wanted, didn't he? He got to see space travel. He was a part of something momentous. And that even, once again, reminds me of Dr. Strangelove. From, and even in the end where he's he has that alien syndrome arm who's Nazi and trying to do the Nazi symbol during the movie. he doesn't really have full control of it and it's trying to you know kill him when it's not letting him do that and in the end uh it's almost like hitler's plan came to fruition that all certain amount of a lot of people would die and so a lot of specialized species would live on that's what dr strangelove's plan is to basically have himself and all these other military officials go down underground to avoid nuclear fallout with a bunch of women essentially that's their that's their plan to repopulate the earth I hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines, the women will have to be selected for their sexual characteristics, which will have to be of a highly stimulating nature. I must confess, you have an astonishingly good idea there, Doctor. Thank you, sir. And in the end, you know, he... Is paralyzed, and then when he gets essentially what they want that they're gonna do this, he, he's able to walk again. It's like Nazism has has brought back. It's you know, it's it's still here. It was here the whole time, and now it's able to come back out. Uh, it essentially, one to some degree. Sir, I have a plan. <laughs> Monsieur, I can walk. And maybe that's. Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm making too many correlations, but that's what it seems like to me, that this is just another victory for Hitler, watching his technology succeed and destroy more people's lives. So what makes it worth it? What do you think should have gone down in history? In what will go down in history? History, history, history. Alright guys, so that episode took a lot longer than I thought. I thought it was going to be a two-parter, um, combining like two different elements, but it, this Von Braun section got way too long and it's been fascinating. And there's so many other characters in this operation that it's almost impossible to try to encapsulate everything. I obviously mainly focus on Von Braun just because there's a lot of, he's more recognizably known, there's more footage of him, and I've personally started to find him fascinating because the more I dug, the more weirder stuff that I kept finding. And I really wanted to tackle this question of did I think that he was more guilty than what he said or maybe even thought that he was. Um, and I think there will be other chemists and scientists and uh, people that we will talk about in the future. This was just specifically rocket scientists that are brought over in overcast and paperclip. And you're able to see how all these bureaucrats are able to circumvent the law on these uh memos in order to get the their assets over here to the United States at whatever cost. And the next episode, we're going to dive nose deep 
into the ex-CIA chief, essentially, for Nazi Germany, which was Reinhard Galand. I mentioned him a lot in the first episode, and and he will be doing very what very similar to what Van Brown did on finagling his way, finagling his way to a plea bargain, offering up this or that, you know, intelligence services that we mentioned in the first episode, and he will be put back in Germany. Uh, he will take control of the Vlasov army that we talked about in the first episode, and he will begin to feed the United States intelligence about what's going on in East Germany and Russia, and maybe. Some of that intelligence is going to have some blowback. <laughs>